You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. You and predictably After hours of waiting, word finally came down. It's my responsibility as governor to deal with this extraordinarily severe problem. The plane was on the tarmac, ready to pick up the governor of New York fresh from a 1990 victory where he beat the Republican by 30 points. The plane was to bring him to file papers for the New Hampshire primary, and a $1,000 check for the filing fee was approved by the man running his campaign, the governor's son, Andrew Cuomo. website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Remember, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. The plane was on the tarmac. If there was snow and the plane couldn't fly, an aide was in Concord, New Hampshire, waiting to file the papers himself. Also on standby were volunteers to be a crowd of would-be Cuomo 1992 supporters to greet him when he arrived in the Granite State, and then to greet him again at the New Hampshire State House where he'd be filing. There are incredible amounts of cameras at the State House, according to his aide, Grand Mason, who was there. Cuomo had been talking to consultant Bob Shrum, and you didn't talk to Shrum, who had worked with Carter, McGovern, Biden, and many others, Ted Kennedy. You didn't talk to Shrum unless you were thinking of running for president. Cuomo was leading the field in any poll taken of potential Democratic candidates in the 1992 primary. He was leading the field by 20 points. There was no competition that anyone nationally had heard of. Yes, in Washington, people knew about that guy in Arkansas, Clinton, the young governor. But Arkansas was a small state. Cuomo had prepared a statement in case he decided to run. Reporters were at the governor's mansion in New York. The New York Times compared what they were doing to a papal succession, looking for that white smoke to see if a decision had been made. I have no plans and I have no plans to make plans, Cuomo said, but he never ruled it out either. And that secret presidential reporter and candidate language, he didn't say the right words that you're supposed to say. But Cuomo never did. He had done this in 1988 too. Everyone thought he would run. This past weekend... In a last-ditch effort, the Secretary General of the United Nations went to the Middle East. Polls for the general election, it was early, but they showed he was trailing 48 to 43 percent to President George H.W. Bush. Now, the 28 countries with forces in the Gulf area have exhausted all reasonable efforts to reach a peaceful resolution. That sounds like bad news, to be trailing by five points, except... Two months earlier, he had been trailing by 28 points. As I report to you, air attacks are underway against military targets in Iraq. 
We are determined to knock out Saddam Hussein's nuclear bomb. Here's the other thing, though. Cuomo also prepares a statement in case he decides not to run. So he's a statement if he's going to run and a statement if he decides not to run. At the same time, he's working on a budget with the New York State Legislature and promises not to make any announcements about a presidential run until he had reached an agreement with the state Senate and the state assembly on a budget deficit. Here is the trouble. The state Senate was controlled at that time by Republicans, party opposed to the governor. And so it would be that a day in December 1991, he would prepare with cameras focused in Concord and in Albany. He would make an announcement at 3.30 p.m. It is my responsibility as governor to deal with this extraordinarily severe problem the budget deficit. Were it not, I would travel to New Hampshire today and file my name as a candidate in this presidential primary. That was my hope, and I am prepared for it. But I accept the judgment of the national chairman of our party, that it would be in the best interest of the Democratic Party that I abandon any such effort now, so as to avoid whatever inconvenience and disruption to the process is created by the uncertain possibility of another candidacy. But it seemed to me that I cannot turn my attention to New Hampshire while this threat hangs over the head of the New Yorkers I have sworn to put first. Ostensibly, Mario Cuomo was valuing New York over the presidential race. He was This was the job he had and he was valuing it. This is something that every governor who runs for president faces. In fact, the person that would get the Democratic nomination that year, Bill Clinton, had several times faced primary opponents and Republican general election opponents in Arkansas who specifically used his trips to Washington and speculation about him running for president against him in Arkansas. One unfortunate candidate made a press conference about how he was leaving the state abandoned. On the other hand, we're talking about an $8 million budget deficit gap between these two parties in a $3 billion budget. And for that, the presidency historically changed. Now, to go back and be fair to Cuomo on this point, perhaps, he didn't want to start his presidential campaign on a point on the very day that he was to be seen as mismanaging his job. But for Democrats, they felt that his decision to tie his announcement for president to what the state Republicans would do, put the power in their hands, as if they're not talking to the White House. Joining us now is Joe Grandmaison, the man who was stuck in the middle there in 1991. Joe, thanks for being with us. Thank you for the invitation. The New York Press Corps had already nicknamed him by then this uh, Hamlet on the Hudson, famously indecisive. Why did he have such a hard time making that decision? Well, because he's a bright guy. I mean, he didn't do things on intuition. Uh, he had reached, for, in his mind, as I understand it, the pinnacle of his existence. Uh, he wanted to be, first of all, you know, he ran for mayor and lost. Uh, then he was Secretary of State for a while, then Lieutenant Governor, and, and for him, he saw his political career as ending, or be, you know, the pinnacle being uh, the governorship of, of, of the Empire State. So, like so many things with Mario Cuomo, his 1992 flirtation with running, which ends in December 1991, I should say, 1992 race, just leaves more questions than answers. What if Governor Cuomo had gotten into that race? What would have happened? Well, he would have come in as a favorite, all right, at one point, 20 points up, stuff like that, some, some ridiculous number like that. Uh, and as you know very well, that in New Hampshire, it isn't your place. It, it's, it's, 
have you met the expectation? And the expectations for him would have been so high, uh, he would have had to, uh, it would have to have been a very tough campaign, to say the least. And quite frankly, New Hampshire uh, generally has not been terribly supportive of candidates from New York. Yeah. Same thing happens in 1988. A lot of people think that he's going to run. And it's not clear whether he just waited too long and then at that point, um, Dukakis pretty much had the nomination and didn't fail enough to take that nomination from him in the primary. Or if Cuomo never wanted it at all. Nothing's ever clear. I talked about in the episode about um, Don't Run for President, which was um, the genesis of that whole thing is that uh, I had all, this whole book. I, I think my original plan was to do 99 stories about presidential campaigns. That was a little ambitious. By the way, I probably could get there. Uh, there are certainly stories, and I was concentrating on obscure stories. There are certainly 99 stories to tell that people mostly haven't heard of or they haven't heard of the details. But I abandoned that, and I quickly realized that some of these had to be released and expanded and released as episodes. And then the other thing was what was left seemed to be a lot of stories about people not running for president, not wanting to run, being told not to run, running so badly it was like they weren't running, or um, in the case of Rufus King, perhaps not knowing that he was running for president at all, despite what the textbooks say about it. And I enjoyed doing that episode. You know, it's a long one. It could have been four hours if it was um, 99 stories or even at some point, I had adjusted it to 57 stories. So here on the Patreon channel, you're going to hear um, a bunch of those and also for those subscribing to the premium cast. So, okay, Mario Cuomo. So why is, you know, why do an episode about don't run for president and don't talk about probably the most famous modern example? It's because I was focusing on the obscure stuff. So a shining city is perhaps all the presidencies from the portico of the White House and the veranda of his ranch where everyone seems to be doing well. But here I want to talk a bit about Cuomo. Why does Cuomo even get into this? Cuomo's a pretty obscure figure if you're going back to the 1970s, right? Um, so if he's considered for president in the 1988 election, okay, let's go back 10 years, 78 say, and what he is is essentially a failed candidate for New York City mayor. There's another part to the shining city, the part where some people can't pay their mortgages and most young people can't afford one, where students can't afford the education they need and middle-class parents watch the dreams they hold for their children evaporate. In this part of the city, there are more poor than ever, more families in trouble, more and more people who need help but can't find it. All right, Ed Koch beat him in the 77 election. He got into the runoff with Koch and Koch beat him. Mario Cuomo makes his name opposing a large, um, really a low-income housing project that was going to be built in Queens. He stands up for the neighborhood that doesn't want this large intrusion and changes made. And There are elderly people who tremble in the basements of the houses there. And there are people who sleep in the city's streets, in the gutter, where the glitter doesn't show. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. 
so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Cuomo has a complex relationship to this whole thing. He speaks up for them. He also, when the time is right, criticizes them a bit too. He tries to keep his distance from of total, not in my backyard. Very erudite. He gets a reputation. So I did an episode about the 1980 convention, the Democratic convention that was in New York, where the big battle was between Ted Kennedy and Jimmy Carter. Where you want to put Cuomo is with Jimmy Carter in that contest. If Carter had won a second term, you know, it's possible that uh, Cuomo either becomes a strong ally to the administration and becomes governor, or he becomes uh, a cabinet person for, for Carter, because he was one of his biggest supporters in New York. When Hugh Carey was a little bit iffy about the reelection, and there were a bunch of people backing Ted Kennedy in New York. Okay, so that's where Cuomo is. He's not really my, and then he gets the, he wins the gubernatorial election where Cuomo makes his national name is the same place that Barack Obama made his national name. By the way, it's not that weird. It's the same place where Warren Harding makes his name. Um, there's other examples that I'm not thinking about right now. I guess you could say John Kennedy. It's John Kennedy, and this is the keynote speaker at the convention. The keynote speaker at the convention before. So in 84, Cuomo makes a speech that really takes it to Reagan and is one of the most articulate speeches made. In the faces that you don't see, in the places that you don't visit, in your shining city. In fact, Mr. President, this is a nation... Mr. President, you ought to know that this nation is more a tale of two cities than it is just a shining city on a hill. Um, against the Reagan administration in 84, much better than anything that's going to come from Mondale or Ferraro. He had this kind of mix of this lawyerly, scholarly talk and then mixed with a little bit of the blue collar. But, um, you know, there's reasons. I'll, I'll get into it a little later. But he, he doesn't end up running in 1988. When you fast forward four years, people want him to run again, and I think this gets more serious. And after he decides not to run, Cuomo supporters still launch a draft movement, and they encourage people to write in his name in the Democratic primary. It's held on February 18th, 1992. Cuomo doesn't discourage it. He doesn't say, don't do this, which again, for reporters, that's something they're picking up on. Here's the issue. He wasn't running, and you had a battle going on in New Hampshire between, at this time, Paul Sangus, a former Massachusetts senator, and Bill Clinton, the governor of Arkansas. And they're going back and forth. And people in New Hampshire are like, well, we're not going to give our votes to somebody who's not up here and maybe has decided not to run. He only gets 3.9% of the votes in the New Hampshire primary in 1992, and then tells the draft to put a stop to it. He gets the name Hamlet on the Hudson now that there's been two presidential elections where he's sort of like, is he going to run or not? And he doesn't. Sandy Berger, who became uh, Clinton's national security advisor, said that Clinton was very confident and actually wanted to run against Cuomo because he wanted to get this kind of giant killer status. This was a thing in the 88 election 
that carried into 92 in, in Clinton's thinking, I think heavily influenced it, is that um, in 1988, you had Gary Hart. And really, in um, the giant killer idea comes from 1984 even, where you had Walter Mondale, a former vice president, who seemed like he was going to win the primary easily, has the endorsement of former President Jimmy Carter and others. Then Gary Hart comes out of nowhere, does well in Iowa, and wins the New Hampshire primary. Then starts to win some other states. And it's like, wow, this guy's a giant killer. Then Gary Hart becomes the giant himself as you get into 1988. Lo and behold, he has some personal issues, has to get out of the race. So people actually were mad that they didn't get the chance to beat him and get that status as giant killer. It's still around that a concept in 92, and Clinton wants it. Clinton actually wants to get in with Cuomo. He figures in the Super Tuesday contests, which are mostly Southern contests, he'll beat him. So you just have this speculation about Mario Cuomo. Why didn't he run? And it's not something I'm going to be able to answer on this cast. You could get a little bit into his family history. I do know that a reporter told a story that Mario would tell about his parents who were immigrants from Italy who ran a small store. One day, when he was a very young boy, a woman unusually well-dressed for a poor neighborhood like they lived in showed up at the store. His father didn't speak English and asks Mario Cuomo's sister who the woman was. The sister says, that's Mario's teacher. Without saying a word, his father walks over and slaps Mario. If the teacher had come to the store, it must be because Mario had done something terribly wrong. That was the way that his parents had instilled a work ethic, a performance ethic, a success ethic into Cuomo. Something that Andrew Cuomo in interview says did carry on in, the, in a generation, by the way. In fact, that teacher came to the store to say that Mario was doing so well, he should skip a grade. But that's the kind of standards he was held up to. Of course, both in 1988 and 1992, a lot of the question behind Mario Cuomo was, is he not running because of mob ties? That's like one of the most common reflex things. There's a Saturday Night Live skit where, you know, they they kind of riff off that theme of not running for president. They have each person who doesn't want to run and Mario Cuomo just keeps saying, I have mob ties. And uh, so we'll look into it a little bit. This is always a difficult and dicey thing. What are ties? You know, you st- you look at that, particularly when you're talking about the cities of America. There is a relationship between political machines and the mob in a lot of cases. If you're just using a loose standard such as the word ties, it's going to be real easy to pull stuff out. Reporters have looked into this, and it really does look like there's more of the allegation than the actual substance. But uh, it's something that Mario Cuomo had addressed directly at times. At one point, he's just at a convention, National Association of Broadcasters, and a woman in the hotel lobby's like, I really love you, Governor. We've heard your family's involved with the mob. You know, and that's just your family, though. It's not you. You should run anyway. So it, we know, I think, a lot more than they did then about how fake news sort of gets into the cycle, or exaggerated news is a better term. So... Cuomo's like, I asked her where she heard such things, and she said it was scuttlebutt around her husband's office. At one point, he tells a reporter, E.J. Dion of the Times, that he feels that there was some kind of whispering campaign at work to spread malicious stories. Now, if you're talking about the period of the late 80s, you have Lee Atwater still operating. That's always a possibility, because certainly his game. And 
various Republicans picked up things from that. It's like just kind of create the whispering, especially among a group like the press. One reporter said, the governor's right. The rumors about him and his family were everywhere. So many were in the air that major news organizations hired private detectives and former city cops to investigate and sort out these stories. But nothing of substance came up. Here's one that said, we scrubbed him pretty good and didn't come up with anything. But there are some light connections, and I'm going to talk about you know what to make of them. Anyone who's a lawyer, and particularly in New York City, you know, might run into something like this. He, as a lawyer, represented organized crime guys when he was with his law firm. His ex-law partners have a story that their firm, not Cuomo, but their firm was used to pay off a person who got arrested so that he wouldn't talk, uh, Carmine Gaultieri, who killed an undercover cop in Queens, that their payroll was used like a wash. Money in, money out through the law firm. Again, not something Cuomo as a lawyer authorized, but Cuomo, Cuomo's opinion of it when he addressed the issue was that if he makes an announcement, it will definitely invite enemies who like to take shots at Italian-Americans in particular. See? Oh, the reason he did this is because he has a skeleton in the closet. He had a way that he was going to deal with that, talking to Shram and talking to others, and it was going to be, let me show you the skeletons in my closet and bring out his Italian-American family that he was very proud of, his mother, his father's hardworking family. You know, it wasn't something that alone really explains why he didn't run, but it's certainly there. There is a uh, another angle onto this whole mob thing, and that is um, his father-in-law, Charles Rafa. In 1984, Cuomo's governor, his father-in-law, who owns some buildings and properties in Brooklyn, goes to show a space that he owns, which is an empty grocery store, to a prospective tenant. And instead, uh, uh, people in a nearby dry cleaner store see him emerge from the parking lot, bleeding, uh, so severely beaten, they recognize him only from his clothes. His head had been sliced open. I mean, it's really a grotesque wound that we're talking about here. Yet, he doesn't want any medical attention. He doesn't want to talk to the police or anything like that. And he merely waves it away and, and tries to go home. I mean, this is somebody with his, basically the top of his head, the scalp is cut. And he he's eventually not even able to drive, obviously, and, and is taken to the medical center. Uh, plastic surgery, repeated trips to the hospital. He never completely recovers from this. And he also has difficulty remembering it difficulty speaking. So there's this kind of nebulous thing of, did he just kind of forget the incident or did he not talk because he was involved in something? No witnesses. Nobody wanted to talk. Detectives aren't able to get any information. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow simultaneously freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. 
Zachary Carabell, and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Before the 92 election, there's a congressional hearing, and a representative from Pennsylvania, a Republican, brings up that he heard there were several contributions made to Governor Cuomo's campaign from tax scam funds. It does turn out that he's received money from mob sources. Now, that sounds really, oh, you got him now, except that you have to understand in the 1980s, the mob had figured out that the real way to do their business was to come up with these fake construction companies, cement companies. It'd be like ABC Cement, like things like this. You know, here's what Andrew Cuomo says about it. We had 16,000 names. I couldn't find the name of the person they were talking about, who was a man that was arrested for this uh, tax scheme where they would steal the gas and then be able uh, steal to steal the gasoline and then be able to sell the gasoline later, pay no taxes and stuff like that. A huge scam. I couldn't find the guy's name. Then Andrew Cuomo says, NBC says we took the money from an ex-partner who was a government witness. We checked his name, Iorizo. Couldn't find him. Then NBC came back with some corporate names, and we found that we had received five $1,000 checks from five corporations, Northbrook Assets, Lessa's Petroleum Corporation, Houston Holdings, Future Positions Corporation, and CMC Corporation, all of Long Island. Law enforcement said these firms were paper companies set up to avoid paying gasoline taxes. The checks were tickets to a fundraising dinner for Governor Cuomo held November 1984 at the Sheridan Center. So $5,000, here's the issue with that. We had raised $1.2 million, a lot, by the way, in 1984, Andrew Cuomo says. There was no way of checking every corporate check we got. In fact, as soon as we found out what happened, we tried to send the money back. The companies were already out of business. We sent the money to charity. But this is how the story runs on December 4th, 1985. NBC News has found that at least five companies, now identified by authorities as mob fronts, have made contributions to a campaign fund for New York Governor Mario Cuomo. And one federal witness said he was ordered by his mob boss to write a check to the Cuomo campaign. Well, here's one thing I know. These days, those ties are enough. And back then, those ties would definitely be enough to be the issue every day in the campaign, unfortunately. He could sit there and say he, he gave back the money. It's only 5000 of $1.2 million. She got a mob boss saying that, or, or a witness saying that a mob boss told him to donate to Cuomo. And that's not going to, they're not going to have that with President Bush. We know how things get conflated stories and in social media today. And it you know, then it was, it, it wasn't all that different except that the conflation wasn't happening at the individual account user level like with Twitter, but it was happening on daily news reports on television and, and to a limited extent in newspapers. Newspapers would probably flush it out a little more. The headlines would be damning. So 
And I think there was a slightly different view. This is before a lot of the big RICO cases came to fruition and bosses were captured and people kind of arrested and people turned on the mob and everything. We're talking about the a time in New York where crime was a really big issue. People felt it was out of control. Any association with it would have been a bad issue, especially in the 1992 election, running on crime. Even running against uh, Governor Bill Clinton of Arkansas, who I don't know if Clinton would have made a direct issue of it in a Democratic primary, but he certainly would have been able to hint at it pretty easily enough just by using a crime issue. So the other thing is the huge popularity, unexpectedly, that President Bush would have in 1991 after the conclusion of the Gulf War. Okay, so he's a little unpopular when there's a recession in 1990. Then we launched the attack. It's a very quick couple of months. And uh, he's up in the polls. But then the recession continues in 1991, and his popularity starts waning. We have a question right here. Yes. How has the national debt personally affected each of your lives? And if it hasn't, how can you honestly find a cure for the economic problems of the common people if you have no experience in what's ailing them? Well, but it hadn't quite reached the full everybody. level yet. Uh, obviously, it has has a lot to do with interest rates. It has. She's you, saying you personally. You on a personal basis, how has it affected you? Has it affected you personally? Well, I'm sure it has. I love my grand grandchildren. I want to think how? that. And so, Bill Clinton and not Mario Cuomo is the one that's going to benefit from that. Be in the White House for a day and hear what I hear and see what I see and read the mail I read. But Cuomo's the one that has to make the calculation. We had all the portraits in place. All the portraits were restored. We were missing just one portrait by a famously shy governor <laughs> who was still unwilling to sit for a portrait, considering it uh, an act of indulgence, God forbid. So uh, never to be stymied by an obstacle. Cuomo administration found a way to get the portrait, even without the person knowing. <laughs> Who said the portrait artist ever really needed to see the person he was painting? <laughs> That's why God made photographs. And we had a portrait done from photographs. Not especially the best way to do a portrait, but it worked just fine. Because a man as handsome as my father you don't need a lot of visits to see that beauty. <laughs> and what I like about this today is there's only one microphone and I have it. <laughs> it's nice to be governor. So to just see the Mario Cuomo story as something that's like, Oh, this guy just can't make decisions. People have talked about how he made significant policy. Dis like, he wasn't a waffly guy. He was a Democrat that in the 1980s and 90s, when crime was the number one issue, was against the death penalty. Yet, you know, yes, in deciding to be whether to pursue an exhaustive presidential campaign against an incumbent president. Yeah, he took some time and then decided not to. I do think he's a reflective person. It obviously... 
a cautious person. And that I think that in politics, I talked about this in the Don't Run for President episode. You got to take your opportunities when you when you can. Uh, and many others. He's, he's really outstanding and he did an outstanding job here. Uh, and I can't tell you the, the joy and pride that I have. It's not a business that rewards uh, hesitancy all the time. And sometimes you do have to run, make that run against incumbents. Um, but he didn't, he didn't see it. In 1988, I believe Gary Hart had over 60% support in the Democratic primary. And then the Donna Rice thing happened. That was another thing where Cuomo was sitting on the sidelines. And then maybe he thought there wouldn't be a good candidate, but I think Dukakis had consolidated enough by the time you're getting to that New York primary in 1988. And that's where Cuomo has to belatedly endorse Dukakis. Here's the thing about the Cuomo mob connections that I don't think is, is well known because it came out later, is that in 1992, so this would have been the year that he was running for president. Maybe he wouldn't have made this trip if he did. He goes to Italy. He's targeted by Sicilian mobsters for assassination. They had planned out where they could have a groups of people with Kalishnikovs, block escape routes, and they wanted to send a message to the Italian authorities, don't mess with us, and to the United States, stop helping Italy to prosecute mobsters here. We're going to send you a message by targeting a prominent Italian-American politician, and that was Mario Cuomo. Maurizio Avola, serving a life sentence for his part in 43 murders and 40 armed robberies, told the Guardian newspaper that in 1992, mobster bosses planned an ambush, assault rifles, explosives. They only turned off the attack when the scale of Cuomo's security detail became apparent. So what else is there to say about uh, Mario Cuomo? I think we explored the issues enough. It is what it is. I mean, he was a very interesting person with lots of potential. Might have been a very interesting president. You would have had some great additions to the speeches of American presidents, at the very least, is what I would say. And as I always say about speeches, they don't sound like much, but it is a big part of the job of an American president to do that right. I think... um, what a little bit of what Mario Cuomo felt and definitely what Andrew Cuomo has said is that the implication of those mob ties was made too much on television, unfair, wrong, but still running on the TV news and that that hurt them. Um, another take on this whole thing with Mario Cuomo was that he was just playing a mystery game. Tom Hayden, who is a you know, involved in the Chicago protests in 68, then became a state senator. He said, you know, with uh, Mario Cuomo, he runs by not running. He's creating all this demand because he's not telling you he runs for president. He creates demand by reducing supply. I think at least in 1988, that's exactly what part of his strategy was. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Remember, we have a Patreon, patreon.com slash M-H-C-B-U-Y-P. And if you like the podcast, you know, please tell someone about it. Spread the word. Going on 15 years, and that's been the main agent of getting new listeners is people like you telling someone else about it. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. vs. China 
where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.